and welcome to the Barbarians at the Gate podcast. I'm Jeremiah Jenny. I'm here with my co-host, the recently inoculated David Moser. David, how you doing? Oh, very good. That's right, Jeremiah. Just just for to place this in the historical timeline, I just got my second COVID vaccine today. And so I'm, you know, should be safe safe for podcasting. I just want to get a, an injection or a vaccination because I have a feeling at some point in the near future in China, it's going to be either an official or an unofficial requirement to check into hotels or to travel yeah. or to do most things. Kind of the same way the health, the green health kit app has become kind of the, the, the you know, you need it to do anything. And I have a feeling that vac- proof of vaccination is going to become, if only unofficially, the same kind of thing this summer. Yep, absolutely. But my, my, I looked at my uh, health, my, my uh, what do you call it, health kit, the Jian Kang Bao, you know, and the, the, the record of the, the second uh, vac- vaccination was already on there. I mean, immediately updated, which is kind of encouraging, but also terrifying. With us today is uh, Ruth Paulson, who's the Director of Curriculum and Assessment at the International School of Beijing. Uh, how you doing, Ruth? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on today. We really we wanted to have uh, have you on today, Ruth, because David and I read the article that, that you recently published, taking a look at the issues of culture shock, racial sensitivity. And I know that's something that you've been working on for both professionally and personally, uh, for a long time. And uh, one of the things that it, that you told us uh, when we were setting this interview up is that you are a lifelong expat, as opposed to, say, David or I, who, you know, we spent most of our adult lives out of our home countries. You grew up as a, you're a second generation expat. That's right. So I went to Arabic kindergarten and I graduated from high school in Jerusalem. I've lived in a couple of countries in the Middle East and now a couple of more countries as an adult in Asia. And I, yeah, so I just love um, being an expat living overseas and learning from other cultures. So Ruth, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what, what drew you to some of these these important issues. And the, the article you wrote, which we ha- the link is in the, the show notes, it looked at the line between culture shock and racism. As a kid growing up overseas, or as an adult who did grow up overseas, I have seen the world through cult- cross-cultural lenses through my whole life. And this is true for lots of people, for immigrants, for all sorts of people around the world see the, through, see the world through cross-cultural uh, lenses. But it's not always very true for white people, and especially white people in America and in the West. We often see the world through a monocultural lens without even realizing it without recognizing that we even have a lens. Sometimes we as white people think that we're neutral and that we're objective and that everybody else has a cultural lens, but we don't. And I think that's really common. And what's been recently on my mind has been when I interact with teachers who come to other countries. So I work in international school and we're a K-12 school, and most of our teachers are from the West. Not all, but many. And most of our teachers are white. And many of um, the teachers that I work with or that I I meet uh, socially uh, from other schools um, come to other countries, and then we have culture shock, and we have challenging experiences, really challenging experiences. And there's no getting away from the fact that when you come and you're a guest in someone else's country, there can be really challenging times. But then what happens is because we have so much privilege in our home country, we don't realize 
oh, um, the, the challenges that I'm experiencing are actually culture shock. And it's not just that this country is wrong. This country is doing everything wrong and they don't know what they're doing. It's that actually they're doing it differently. And maybe I don't understand why they're doing it differently. And so um, it's always rubbed me the wrong way when teachers will come to other countries and then rant about that country. And that really has always bothered me. And so I wrote the article, What's the Line Between Culture Shock and Racism?, mostly to unpack my feelings about that and to get to the bottom of why I feel so annoyed and irritated when um, foreigners come to other countries and, and then complain about that country a whole bunch. You know, reading your article, I was wondering about something because I, I sort of, my daughter went to ISB, the international school as well. And I know very well from, from interacting with expats for decades that there's a difference between the people who stay within this bubble that's that's mostly anglophone and the people that try to get out it out of it i think teachers people who are employed here working here they they have their own sort of their career and they're probably not in, in invested full time and lifetime in in any one country and certainly not in china yeah i think you're right is that um we as expats uh especially people who work in international schools or teach at universities we hold enormous privilege economic privilege uh cultural privilege and we come into spaces and we just carry that privilege with us. And sometimes we surround ourselves with other people who think like us and look like us. And instead of coming to a new country in a spirit of inquiry and wanting to find out what we don't know, we come expecting that we know everything and that we're going to tell them how to do it and teach them how things should be. And that's what really rubs me the wrong way is that sense of entitlement that like, I know how to do this and, and you don't. And so let me tell you how to do it. Now, this can be nuanced and challenging. So let me give an example. And it's actually to do with Jeremiah, because um, part of the reason that I loved, uh, like, there's a positive example here. So I, uh, during COVID, have found it very challenging that my housing compound will change the rules about how to get in and who can come in and which gates are open day by day, hour by hour, without any notification of the residents. So we'll show up at our gate and, oh, now this gate is closed. And we didn't tell you that in advance, but you have to go to this other gate. And now you need this ID card. And then the next day, it's a different ID card. And, and it's like constantly shifting without any notice. That has been incredibly challenging and frustrating for a Westerner who, in our norms, our set of cultural norms, we expect to be notified. When any rule changes, we should be told about it. And in some, and often like multiple ways. I loved one time I set up a, a tour with you, Jeremiah, and in your pre, like it, your notes before the tour, you had a line in your email and it said something like, in China, there are different norms around um, public sharing of, uh, of information. And so, therefore, don't be surprised or if it turns out that we show up at the Summer Palace and the, the rules have changed and we can't get in, we will refund you and um, we'll be flexible. And I just loved that line because that was a way of saying, like, we're guests here our norms as Westerners, that we are to be informed and the website should be updated with the right information. Um, our norms are not the salient norms here. We're not the ones who are writing the rules and the rules are not written for us. And you said it in such a neutral and additive way with that kind of spirit of humility. Like we're not ranting about this. This is where we are and these are the contexts. And yeah, that can be challenging. 
and we're going to flex with it and be um, able to adapt to where we are. And I think, I think that's key is that that frame of mind as a foreigner that um, it's not all about me. I'm not the center of this story. I'm a guest here. And so therefore I need to be the one to be flexible and I need to be a little bit humble that maybe there's things going on here that I don't really understand. And that um, even if it doesn't work great for me, it's working for the people who it's working for. <laughs> and so I just appreciated that. And that was one of the things I thought of as I was writing the article, because I could think of a whole bunch of examples of the opposite approach where, and it's often a white person, person which is why I brought up racism, it's often a white person who will rant about how everything's wrong here and how frustrating it is and how they could just do it this way, they would be right. One thing though, I mean, think about the, the stages of culture shock, right? And one of the first stages is this kind of sense where, you know, after you get over the euphoria of being in the new culture and then you start to realize how different everything is, there is, for lack of a better term, a kind of ranty stage. Uh, and I, I think that almost everyone who has come to a new culture kind of come get, comes through this stage. And the idea, of course, is whether or not, just like any emotional process, whether we then come out the other side or whether we get stuck in a particular place emotionally and then just kind of keep reliving, you know, a trauma of newness over and over again. And I, I, I think, you know, one of the things to think about is at, in, when processing this stage, you know, where do we draw the line between, okay, this person is adjusting to, wow, uh, this person is just a little bit racist. And, or maybe we could just simply say that it's at, at these moments of great emotional stress, it's when our true character shines. And sometimes that can be really ugly. I do want to say that it's not wrong to have negative feelings when your norms are challenged. And that was something I tried to say in the article, that it's very normal and human. And I'm not condemning the having the negative feelings. Um, so I gave in the article the example of standing in line. So that when in places in China, I have somebody stand in line right up against me and they're like touching my back, I can feel my adrenaline go up and like, I can feel the nerve, like the frustration and the nervousness and the like upset feelings. And that is absolutely normal because that norm of standing in line is a way people communicate, like how close you stand to somebody is a way you communicate a whole bunch of things. And the things that you communicate when you stand too close in Western culture are that are usually aggression. It's usually that you're, you're either like, it's a come on or it's aggression. That's just, that's what I grew up with or that's my um, frame of reference. So it's not wrong for me to feel those things. I think a little bit of mindfulness helps here and just like emotional maturity to be able to say, to, to name the emotion, say, oh, I can notice it. My heart's beating fast here. I'm feeling flushed. What's happening? What's happening is I'm, I'm reacting to this person touching me in the back. And then to say, take a breath first before you react. I know I'm feeling this feeling. How am I going to respond? And the feeling itself is not wrong and it's not necessarily racist. It's culture shock, but the response could be racist or it could be 
kind or at least neutral, like at least polite. Yeah, Ruth, I really resonate with what you're saying. Uh, there's there's so much to be said about this as a learning experience about not only the culture, but yourself. So I just wanted to give one more other example and see what you think. Uh, standing line was certainly one I went through and also the, the existence of a line at all, because sometimes you, th- you think you're standing in line and you're not. Actually, there's no line. But another example are things like, um, in China anyway, you've been in many more countries than I have, but in China, people will very often uh, be very open about talking about things that are sensitive in our culture, like, oh, you've gotten fat. And uh, <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen many professors, <laughs> visiting scholars or something practically fall on the floor with uh, just apple, an apoplectic fit, you know, about this. But, but, but I think, but my, the reason I think it's great is Jeremiah both worked for uh, study abroad programs, you know, for many years. And I think Jeremiah will agree with me, those moments and those, those adrenaline rushes like you talk about, you know, that's, that is a ranty kind of moment. And I agree with you. I think you should, you should feel it and not feel bad about feeling it. But I think, I think that's kind of the camel's nose under the tent to 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 get real cross cultural understanding, because if if you're feeling if you notice that there's a real cultural difference there, that's a chance for you to learn something. And so then back to your idea of the bubble, is now I I do feel <clears throat> deep guilt that my Chinese is horrible, and and I I really do feel that that's a, a shortcoming of of my time here in China, but I have purposefully sought out Chinese colleagues who I can befriend and spend enough time with that then I have the kind of relationship with them that I can go and ask them and ask them the question like what's happening here they they called me fat can you explain what's going on and and that I can ask that question in a neutral enough way that it is a real inquiry help me understand what's going on in this situation and um, they can give me some real insight and so I think that bubble, it doesn't always have to be that the bubble means that you are mm, going so far out of your way to find a million people or to have like very different experiences or to live in the hutongs or what, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't always mean that. Really, I think it comes down to relationships. Who do you eat with? Who do you have coffee with? Do you have any relationships with people of a different race than yourself? And of your host country race that you spend time with because they can help you with that inquiry. And wow, what richness we can gain from listening and learning to a different way of seeing the world. It really is such a positive thing. I mean, my article, I really mostly talk about negative examples, but there's so much positive to be learned from being willing to be humble and not be the right, the right one and the center of the story every time. Another example teachers often face here in, um, in various Asian countries is students not raising their hands or volunteering information in a course. I don't know if you've experienced that, but when I taught in a California school, my, you know, my 12th graders would be all over any kind of interesting discussion. They would have their hands up and they would be jumping in to, to um, volunteer their opinions. And then I moved to um, teach in an Asian country area. And that didn't happen at all. The conversations were, or, you know, the topics were just as salient and just as authentic to their lives, but yet they wouldn't volunteer information. And so I was a little perplexed. And so I asked them, I said, hey, you know, in the West, we really vol- value um, expressing ourselves and expressing our opinions. 
and speaking up and learning how to use our voices in this way. Uh, tell me about what is it that might be different, a different value that you hold that's um, making it so that we're, we're not having that kind of conversation. A bicultural kid raised her hand and said, Ms. Polson, it's excellence. Excellence is the value. We want to say the right thing and we want to say it really well. And so then we're not, we don't, we're not comfortable just jumping in and throwing ideas around. And now that might not be true for every kid and, and for every situation in, in various Asian countries. Of course, there's tons of diversity, um, but it wasn't that situation. And so then as a teacher, what did I do with that? I said, okay, I still value you learning to use your voices in this way and share your opinions. You value excellence. What can we do to meet? And I said, so I set up certain scaffolds, certain um, ways to help them get there. And so I would give them a minute of writing time first. Here's the question we're going to talk about. Jot down your ideas first. Okay, now turn to an elbow partner, really low stakes. There's no, nobody's listening but this one person. Okay, talk about your ideas first with this one person. Okay, now we're going to have a conversation as a whole class, and I'm going to, I'm going to ask anybody to, I'm going to point to you, and you're going to share your thinking on this. Now that you've had these ways of like preparing so that you have something amazing to say, something great, excellent to say, and you can fulfill your value. And then I can also help you practice something that matters to me. And I think this is a way for us to have that cross-cultural connection as teachers and students is to, to not denigrate students. Like I wasn't going out and saying, oh, these Asian kids, they don't ever raise their hand. They just sit there quietly. And, and I've heard teachers do that. And it drives me crazy because you're not valuing what they do bring, that commitment to excellence. You're not valuing that. Instead, you're just valuing your own thing and you're missing that whole part of the story. You're also missing that you could do things that would help achieve your values. Like you have some uh, efficacy in that situation to, to um, share and help to teach in ways that matter to you. You know, I think that's a really good example, Ruth, and I, I think it speaks to a larger issue as well, which is as educators, frankly, as humans working and living in a new in an environment that's different from the one that we were brought up in, the soft skills matter as much as the hard skills. Uh, just now you were saying, you know, you feel bad, badly that, that your Chinese isn't where it wants to be, but at the same time, I, I know a lot, in my experience, is working with students and also just knowing people who have traveled or lived here, I don't know if necessarily being able to recite the Hong Lo Meng in its original, you know, classical Chinese from memory is necessarily a good gauge of somebody's uh, ability to adapt and thrive in a, just in this particular case, in a Chinese cultural environment. And I, I, I wonder, you know, as you were just saying, that, uh, that empathy, that ability to kind of listen and and I maybe in some ways we also kind of maybe this term soft skill kind of makes it sound like these aren't important, but they actually seem extraordinarily valuable. It, perhaps more valuable than the skills of being able to speak Chinese, knowing like the names of all the emperors, that kind of thing, because it is about listening, empathy, understanding. And you know, I I, I wonder too that I, I've actually seen this in town, and and you know. We're not going to mention any names, but we all kind of know people like this. People who have been here for 20, 25 years, they speak Chinese fluently. You know, they, they have like this incredible knowledge about China. And yet 
they always complain that they can't get things done. And then you see how they act in interactions with people. And even though they're speaking Chinese, they're treating people with that sense of, I guess we'll call it what it is, white privilege, entitlement. And I've seen other folks who get off the plane, don't speak a word of Chinese, and suddenly have like nine friends because they, it's not about the language. It's about the ability to kind of put it out there and understand it for what it is. I think that going back to a point we said at the beginning, it's often that as white people specifically, we have carried so much privilege in our home country and everything has been set up to our tastes and to our way of thinking. I mean, you think back to your your high school literature class. They didn't say, well, we're going to teach you white literature. They just said literature. <laughs> but it was all white literature. And they didn't say, this is a class where we're going to study white art history. They just said art history. <laughs> and then they taught you a bunch of white artists because it, it's invisible. We, we don't see that we're not neutral, that we have a culture and it's only one of many possible ways of seeing the world. And, and we, it becomes so invisible to us that then when we go abroad, we can carry that entitlement with us with all that history of colonialism and imperialism, right? We carry that entitlement with us if we're not careful and intentional about being humble. I really liked um, David Foster Wallace wrote one of his essays called This is Water. And he tells a story in it, uh, just a little silly parable where he says, uh, you know, an, an older fish was swimming along and he met two younger fish and he said to the younger fish, water's fine tonight, boys. And then he kept swimming and the, the, the one younger fish turned to the other younger fish and said, what the heck's water? And the parable, of course, is that we don't notice that we're surrounded by white culture all the time when we're white people surrounded by other white people. And that's why I, I brought up this uncomfortable topic of race into the, into the more comfortable topic of culture and culture shock, because I think that minorities in America have been experiencing this for a long time. They know what it feels like to code switch, to move between um, expectations in your home and then in your school. They, they recognize culture and um, differences, even if we're not calling it quite the same thing in those contexts. They've been experiencing this all along, and it's the, the majority culture, the majority race, that often it's invisible to us. We don't recognize it, and it, unless, we, unless we spend time listening to other people, and yeah, like you said, being empathetic. Ruth, what, what do you think? I mean, we're, we're all educators, and this is obviously something that... that that we wrestle with in our careers. And I think it's, it's become particularly part of the conversation now among educators. But what do you think we can do in sort of con a concrete way to, to confront this continuing and powerful influence of Western or Western normativism, imperialist attitudes, white privilege, all of these things that are kind of in, that are encoded still in our curriculum, in our cult, in our society? Um, I really appreciated Dr. Jose Medina. He's a researcher who focuses on dual language education. And dual language education um, really elevates both a home language and English. So in our school, it's Chinese and English um, to being of equal status in your day. And you spend half the day in one and half the day in the other, and you make intentional connections between the languages. 
he really talks a lot about cultural proficiency, this idea that when you interact with something different, uh, you can respond in either additive or subtractive ways. So as educators, we can model this and we can be reflective and even be willing to have somebody tell us like, oh, I don't know about that thing you said <laughs> and be uh, willing to, to take that and to be reflective and say, oh, I, I wonder if I should keep using that term or if I should keep, you know, I wonder how my students feel when I keep um, complaining about Chinese drivers every day. I mean, like, how do my students feel? That's their driver. <laughs> That's their parents. And um, be reflective about that. Are we using additive or subtractive language when we talk? When we're in community with other, other adults, other white people, especially, um, I find there's a couple of really key tools that can help us to respond when there's those moments where you're like, ooh, that didn't, that, that wasn't additive. Just interrupting it, like, I don't know about that. That's one. Um, asking a question, what do you mean when you say that? Or, or why do you say that? Or why do you think that is? Um, educating, like, perhaps there's another way to think about this. And when other people speak up, echoing what they say. So those aren't my ideas. Those are interrupt, educate, um, question, and echo. Those come from a website called Learning for Justice. Uh, and other people have talked about them. But um, that's one way that we can start having kind of challenging conversations with each other and holding each other to a bit higher standard and not just letting it slide uh, when somebody says something that really is a little bit racist. And I do want to make a note here that often when we hear the word racist, we white people like get our hackles up and we feel like really like, oh, racist must mean I'm really mean or bad. But often it's unconscious. We don't mean to say it. We don't mean to be rude or to denigrate somebody else. It's often that we're not thinking it through all the way or that we um, are unconscious in our bias. So we've got to get over this idea that only bad, mean people are racist. That's not true. Educators are almost universally very well-meaning. Like we mean well, we want to do what's right by kids. We want to do what's right by our students of different cultures, but sometimes we're frustrated and, and we say the wrong thing. And so then I think really a, my call to action would be like, let's hold each other higher to higher standards and let's have those conversations with our friends, with our friends, because it's when we're in convert, like it's when we're in situations with a bunch of other white people that this is going to come up. It's often that, that we could be the one to be like, I don't know about that. Or why do you say that? <laughs> and, and really question that situation. So like, let me give one more example of a time this happened to me recently. I was on a hike with a teacher from another school who I met for the first time that day. She was very frustrated that uh, she was an kindergarten teacher. She was very frustrated that her TA was not teaching the kids independence, but was instead helping the students to tie their shoes and brush their hair. During every break, the TA was spending the whole time brushing the students' hair. These kids are not learning independence. I can't believe it. This is so frustrating. I keep telling her not to do it, but she keeps doing it. And I finally just, I paused her and I was like, <laughs> just a moment. <laughs> You're Chinese TA with your Chinese students. Maybe this is a real bonding moment for them. You know, maybe this little moment where she's brushing their hair is this like really sweet moment between them where they have this, this connection that they wouldn't have otherwise. 
And also, maybe independence that you would like them to gain is not the only value in the world for kindergartners. We Westerners, we deeply value independence in our child rearing. It's one of our core values, teaching them to be independent. It trumps almost everything else. But that's not the only core value in the world. And maybe you don't want, maybe these children's parents don't want them to be so independent that they go off to another country and they do something different for the rest of their lives and they never come back and take care of mom and dad. Maybe they're raising them to be more communal, to be more connected, and independence isn't their core purpose. And so, yeah, why would you teach your kindergartner to be super independent if you don't want them to go and be a Westerner? And um, so, like, that's a little moment. And I tried to say it in a little bit softer way than I just said right now. I can, like, feel myself kind of getting frustrated (laughs) as I'm talking about it. I was trying to be softer in the moment. Um, but like, we can have those conversations with each other and like, well, what if we saw it from a different way? If we looked at it somehow. One more thing about that before I move on is that we who value independence so much in the West have an epidemic of loneliness, right? We have a lot of really lonely people in the West and really alienated from each other people. And so I still deeply value independence and I'm still instilling it in my children as I raise them um, abroad. But I also see that it's not the only value in the world and it, it has downsides too. Oh, wow. I resonate so much with everything you're saying. It's just, it's just incredible. Uh, and it's such a complicated issue. Uh, one of the things that struck me, I was very uh, also resonated with your article is this fine line. I don't even know if it's a line between, between ignorance and racism, because you know, in a certain sense, they're two sides of the, the same coin. And just as you said, you or you alluded to, you outright said that, that you know everyone is racist from from time to time. But that's another way of saying, in a certain sense, that every everyone has moments of ignorance when they're confronted with something they don't yet know about. Um, and you know, the the idea is instead of perpetuating that, it's it's better to take what you called a kind of an inquisitive or an exploratory attitude and, and, and ask questions like, maybe I'm not getting something here. Maybe I'm ignorant. Maybe I should ask. I, I want to mention a, a very sensitive example that, that has come up many times in my study abroad experience from the other, a little bit from the other side, which is a lot of uh, African-American students who have, who have, who have come to study abroad, my study abroad program, and there haven't been that many. There, there are usually whites are in the in the predominant, and uh, inevitably, you know, African Americans have a hard time in China for various reasons. But one of the things that my students would confront was they'd be at an outing at Tiananmen Square or somewhere, and strangers would want to come up and take their photo with them, and then almost inevitably they wanted to touch their hair, like, oh, I wanted, to, you know, the kids would do it. They would, you know, sometimes they would begin by being thinking it was rather cute or interesting, but then they would begin to get into the ranty mode, as Jeremiah said, which is a great word, the ranty stage of, you know, what is wrong with these people? It's so racist. Why are they doing this? And I was sort of in a quandary of what to do about this. Part of me wanted to say, uh, you know, this is a kind of a chance for you to do something. I mean, the, the people that are doing that, for the one thing, you know, a lot of them from outside of Beijing and literally have never seen a black person in their lives. And what you're seeing there is not really overt or even, you know, even unintentional, subconscious racism. 
It's just sheer ignorance. They have no idea what they're looking at. And that's not to be racist against them. It's just that they've been in an isolated culture. I just wonder, uh, you probably have lots of examples. That's one I encountered. But this this line of ignorance and racism that you touch upon, I think, is extremely important. Yeah, you've hit, you've hit on the crux of the challenge of intercultural living. And I don't think I have a great answer for you. Um, and I certainly can't speak for African-American students here in China. Although, but this question of it, when or is it ever okay to criticize our host country when we're the guests here? And I think the way that I've come to terms with this, because it, it turns into very practical questions. I'm an administrator at a school. We need to make some decisions. And sometimes those decisions about our educational program, for instance, they're going to reflect somebody's values. Those decisions are going to reflect somebody's values. And so how do we decide? How, like, how do we make these decisions? I think the metaphor of being a guest in someone's country helps a lot. And again, I'm speaking now from my own perspective as a white guest in a country and not necessarily speaking directly to this issue of the racism that your student experienced. But as a guest in someone's... Like, what if I'm a guest in someone's home? And let's take the metaphor a little bit bigger and say, they're doing me a favor, having me over for dinner. Maybe my electricity's out or something. And, I, and so they're doing me a favor, bringing me into their home. Because really, we're all here in China because we have some opportunities here that we are better than what we could get at home. So in a way, China is welcoming us in and then we, we're getting something great out of this. And so then that metaphor of someone welcomes me into their home, they're doing me a favor, they're having me for dinner. I'm not going to critique, if I'm a decent person, I'm not going to critique their decor. I'm not going to critique their table manners. I'm not going to critique uh, their food. Thank you for dinner. This is lovely, right? Um, if they pull out a knife and start slashing at me, I'm not going to sit there and critique it and not critique that either. Like, my line of not critiquing things is not going to extend past my personal safety. If they take out a cigarette and start smoking and I have asthma, am I going to sit there and take that too? Well, probably not. I'm probably going to say something, but I'm going to say it in a polite way because I'm a guest in their home and they're doing me a favor. So when we think about safety and harm, then we can think about when we're okay with critiquing, either obliquely or not, um, our host country's choices and, and facts. That's not easy to always know. It's not easy to always say when there's harm uh, that we need to um, speak up about and when it's not the right time. Let me give another example in a different context. It's maybe a little easier for me to talk about. And that is the Arab world and gender issues. So I grew up in the Arab world. And liberating women from oppressive Islam is one of the main kind of like rationales for why we went to war in Afghanistan. I mean, not why we went to war, but why we stayed there for so long. My brother <laughs> gives me this rationale all the time um, where we're liberating people. There. Okay. Critiquing things like honor killings. Now, absolutely. Like this is harming people. Telling, like, violence done against women because they've had other violence done against them is absolutely harm happening to those women. 
But when we, as white people, with lots of privilege, rant about the problems that somebody else has, um, or critique them really loudly and use them as, uh, as excuses to go invade places, sometimes we use them as excuses, but also we don't turn that critical eye on ourselves. And if you look at the numbers, there's actually more women in America who are beaten or murdered by their spouses or their boyfriends than there are in the Arab world. The numbers are actually more in the Western world. Spousal murder is like an incredibly common crime. It doesn't make the news because it's so common. It happens more in the West than the Arab world or just as much. The numbers are similar. And yet you don't hear that as part of their narrative, right? You always hear about how oppressive Islam is or the Arab world is to its women and how violent and destructive it is. Well, that might be true, but turn that lens inward. It might be true about you too, or your community too. And so like, what are you doing for your people and their problems? At what point though, does it do, do we get into kind of a relativistic argument though, in the sense that just because it's happening in our country, does that mean we, we can't talk about it if it's, if a similar situation is happening in another country or does it simply affect how we should bring this up and in what context we should bring this up? Yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that I don't hold my own values. I still hold my values. And whether you're talking about something really very serious like violence against women or something like what I hope to instill in my students in my classroom, I still have my own values that I bring to every situation. Um, so I guess in my article and in my in my life, my my hope is for humility, right? That I'm bringing those values with that sense that I'm a guest here and I have more to learn. It doesn't mean that I don't have anything to offer either. I do. I have things to offer as well. I'm going to be much more effective in building a world that's that's safer and that has more people with more well-being and and a better world, I'm going to be more effective if I can listen as well as talk. And then when I do talk, people will want to hear what I have to say too. I can tell you that those friends that I've made in living in China, by listening to their perspective, they're much more likely to listen to my perspective then too. And if I just come in with all my, my opinions and my values without the listening, I undercut myself. Well, Ruth, I, I really want to thank you for taking the time to, to speak with us. Uh, these are you know, issues that uh, have been part of David and my conversation on this podcast for the better part of a year. And it's great to get some more perspective because I think not only does this affect um, our careers as educators, but also I think it's just for all for those of us who live in China, for those of us, you know, for, for everyone who even lives somewhere else or travels somewhere else, this idea of openness, asking questions, empathy, uh, I, th I think it's just so incredibly important. And we really want to thank you for sharing your insights and also sharing your article with us as well. Yes, thank you for all of the history you've shared with me over the years. I've always appreciated our, um, our talks. And yeah, I just, I guess I'd want to end by saying that um, there's so much opportunity in living a cross-cultural life. When we approach it with that humility, with that spirit of inquiry, and listen more than we talk, and 
and come at it with that lens that, of recognizing when I bring privilege into a situation and, and like reflecting on that privilege and keeping that in mind that I have a lens too. I don't know, when we, when we approach cross-cultural living in these ways, there's so much richness to be gained, so much, um, such a interesting and uh, just um, a life that's, can make such a big difference. Like we're, we're a small minority of, um, you know, Western expats who live in, in China, but, but cross, like people who are cross-cultural are a larger and larger portion of our world and uh, the moving across borders and the, the cross-cultural interactions is a bigger and bigger part of our world. And we just, we have to get better at it as a, as a species and we can gain so much from it. It can be so interesting and so rewarding. Beautiful. Well-spoken. Thank you so much, Ruth. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you everybody for listening and join us again on another episode of Barbarians at the Gate. <laughs>